You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is the fastest growing social media application for outdoor enthusiasts, and it's designed by outdoor enthusiasts. If you want more information, visit Google Play Store and download the app or visit timetogowild.com. Let's get outside. It's time to go wild. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles hunting podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and on this podcast, you will find tons of relevant information that will help you become more successful in the field. You'll hear product information directly from the manufacturer and success stories from guys and gals just like you. Sit back, relax, and pour a stiff drink. This episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast starts right now. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. We got a pretty interesting podcast today, and the reason I say that is because we got a guy out of Missouri who one day he's sitting in the tree stand and he realizes, man, I am not doing anything right as far as bow hunting is concerned. And that's what this podcast is about. We're going to be talking with Bradley Haney of Missouri, and he's going to kind of walk us through his evolution as a bow hunter and what kind of clicked for him, what uh, some of the failures were leading into uh, the, the time that uh, I guess there was like a transition period from when he was not successful and how he transitioned into becoming a little more successful of a bow hunter and then uh, the last two years he's accomplished his goal of harvesting a, a mature buck and uh, he's going to share that step and that process with us today now before we get into that podcast real quick Deer Lab uh, if you guys haven't I haven't yet checked out. I can't talk today. Uh, haven't yet checked out uh, DeerLab.com. I, I highly recommend it, especially if you guys are the kind of guys who love to run trail camera and rely heavily on uh, trail camera data from previous years. I do. That's how I hunt, and uh, that's kind of a big part of the strategy that goes into where I hunt throughout the year, uh, especially if we have deer that have returned from previous year that are on my hit list for like the second or third year. I enter all that trail camera data into Deer Lab, and then Deer Lab basically spits out all this content, right? Um, and you can break it down by 
big bucks or mature bucks, right? Or you can break it down to specific deer, right? You can break it all the way down to a particular buck's uh, uh, travel patterns, uh, where this deer likes to be, when he likes to be there, and the wind directions and moon phase. And there's just so much data. So I highly recommend going to deerlab.com slash nine fingers and sign up for a free 30-day trial period uh, from that URL and uh, enter all your trail camera data into it and then take a look, play around with it. There's no harm. You're not going to get charged for everything. And if you like it, you know, continue to sign up. If you don't, hey, no harm, no foul. So yeah, check out deerlab.com. Now, Enough talking. I got chicken nuggets in the oven and my kids are going bananas in the background. So uh, let's get into today's, I guess we'll just call it a straight up BS session with Bradley Haney. All right, on the phone with me right now, Mr. Bradley Haney. How you doing, man? Doing great. How are you, Dan? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. And uh, typically when people come on this podcast uh, for the for a good majority of it, that means they're doing good or they've done something good and or uh, things are working out for them, uh, and it looks to me like you've been you've been a pretty successful bow hunter in the past couple of years. Yeah, it's it's been a very uh, blessed and and fun last two years. That's for sure. After many 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 years of frustration and disappointment. Right. So this is one of those podcasts where uh, I think what we'll do is kind of get into the evolution of your your quote unquote bow hunting career and talk about, you know, maybe some of the changes that you've made, talk about, uh, you know, failures and all, all the stuff that leads to success. And, uh, uh, so we'll, we'll dive into that, but before we do, why don't you tell everybody where you're from and, uh, where you do most of your bow hunting at? Yeah. So I am from Eastern Missouri, uh, town, uh, Southwest of St. Louis, about 30 or 35 miles. And, uh, my family has a farm there. Uh, my dad's a full-time farmer. And so very blessed in that aspect, get a pretty large chunk of ground to bow hunt on. So it's a corn and soybean farm, uh, very, uh, very little timber, but, um, holds a lot of deer and we've got, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's different from typical farm country because we're kind of on the edge of St. Louis. And so there's not a lot of agriculture around us. So. Nice. Uh, because of that, it brings a lot of deer into our place. Gotcha. So is your farm in the, in the farm that you hunt surrounded by like suburbs or is it that close or is it a little further out than that? Yeah. So, um, there is a, a river that it borders the farm on the West and North side. And then on the other side of that river, there's a subdivision of, uh, like a thousand homes. Okay. So it almost, and then a, so it almost and then we're bordered down. on the other side, but yeah, we're bordered on the other side by a couple hundred as well that are within probably two miles or so of, of the farm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not like I'm in a guy's backyard, but there's a lot of homes around the farm for sure. Right. So it sounds to me like it's, it's just like an oasis for some of these deer it kind of sucks them in. It, it really does. It really does. It's it's a it's a good spot. We've got a lot of food, um, which it really brings in. I mean, if you hunt late season and you're looking over, you know, we've got kind of one one main bottom, um, and if if you're in a stand where you can see that entire bottom, it's not uncommon to count between fifty and seventy deer. Wow, wow. So 
do you guys leave any standing crops out through through the year to act as food plots or do you have food plots on this this farm or is it just strictly farming so as farmers standing crops equal you know no profits so right. uh we we do we don't leave any standing crops um and then as far as food plots go i've planted food plots in the past and it's almost like the deer don't even care that they're there just because there's hundreds of acres of corn or soybeans kind of on the ground. Once the combine goes through, um, you know, even with a good combine, you're still leaving stuff on the ground. So, um, the food plots have been really kind of a waste of time. I feel as far as killing deer, I'm sure they're helping in other aspects, but as far as killing deer over them, I've not seen any success with food plots. Yeah, man, that's crazy. Well, that's a good thing. Saves you money, right? Right. Exactly. They're, yeah. They're expensive. And, you know, a lot of people like, like to get out and play farmer and, and do that. And, and, uh, I work a full-time job, but help out on the farm quite a bit. And so it's, it's not near as fun for me as the, as the guy who gets to do it once you know, a weekend a year versus the guy who's doing it all the time. Right. So. Absolutely. So you mentioned that a majority of it is crop ground, egg ground, and mm-hmm. there is some timber, obviously, is there like, is it a CRP timber mix? Just, you know, share with us the yeah, breakdown so, of this property. So basically if you, if you would take a, a, a capital L and kind of flip it on its upper access upside down. So it's a long, uh, running North South, a long bottom, and then it makes a 90 degree turn and heads straight West. And then if you took a kind of a line and made a triangle, that's basically what the property is on the um, west and north side is all bottoms. And then on the southwest side, um, there's a, uh, like a more not quite as densely populated subdivision, more just like a road with like houses that have acre to three acre lots uh, on the western side. That uh, So it goes bottom up into the hills. And then on, in the hills, there's, uh, there's those houses and there's woods between the houses and the bottom. So on the Southern end of the property, there's a decent chunk of woods. And then, um, along the Western and Northern edge, uh, there is timber between the fields and the river. And it's anywhere between 10 and I'm going to say 80 yards wide, just kind of depending where that is, you know, along the river. So. Gotcha. So out of that property, you know, obviously when the crops come in and when the crops come out, deer, I'm guessing shift, you know, where they're, where they're living. Cause there's all that habitat that disappears. Is there a specific part of the farm that holds more, more deer or you prefer to hunt because of either terrain features or just that's where all the deer signs at? So on the Southern edge of the property, and I don't know if you know, and probably a lot of people listening to the podcast don't know, but the way a lot of the river bottoms work is that um, on one side of the river, you'll have the bottom. And then on the other side, you'll have kind of a bluff and then it'll open back up where you have a bluff on one side and then the bottom will be on the other side. It's just kind of the way the river cuts that. So yep. um, on the Southern end of the property, we do have a pretty good chunk of woods where the deer typically will bed on our side of the river. On the northern edge of the property, they are they will bet on us a little bit, um, but their main betting area is on the other side of the river. Uh, and we'll get to this because this was a huge change that I had to make. But uh, basically, between um, on the other side of the river, between the river and the 
thousand home subdivision I was telling you about, uh, there is a chunk of woods that it's a hill. It's a pretty steep hill that deer still go up and down it, no issue. Uh, but people really don't go up and down it. So deer can live across the river from our property and they could probably live their entire lives without seeing a human being in that chunk of woods. Really? Yeah. Cause they got so, everything. Um, they've got, it's, it's, it's thick. It's difficult to access. A lot of the people in the subdivision aren't really, you know, people that are going out tromping around in the woods. So, um, you know, they may live their entire lives and never encounter a human or maybe once or twice. It's just super low pressure. The bedding is good. Um, and then right across the river, they've got an endless amount of food that they can eat. Gotcha. So I take it that the river isn't so crazy. It's not like the Mississippi river, right? It's, it's easily crossable for these, for these deer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a tributary to the Mississippi. Um, but it's, uh, in the summer you can just about walk across it and, uh, it's probably, I don't know, 30 to 50 yards wide. I mean, you can, you can about throw a rock over it. Um, right. So it's not something that you can walk across real easy. Uh, but the deer they have, I mean, they don't even really know that it's there. They just swim across it with no issue at all. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, that's kind of funny. I was talking to this old-time bow hunter who he's been doing it for, you know, longer than I've been alive. And he was telling me, you know, he's like, people look at rivers and they see an obstacle. D- deer cross that like we walk on a sidewalk. So if you think a deer is not crossing a river, you're mistaken. Like they'll cross uh, it. They'll cross it easily. I, I mean, even when it's like 20 degrees outside and you don't want to step in a puddle, right. I've seen deer just hop, hop in the river, swim right across. No issue. I mean, they, they, they honestly, they don't even see it that it's there. Right. Right. So, so over the years, right. You've, uh, I take it you've been hunting this particular piece of property for a long time because it's been in your family. Yeah. Yeah, so I've been um, hunting it for about 16 years. 16 years, okay. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk a little bit. You've already you've already talked about the quantity. You said late season you'll see, you know, 50, 70, 100 deer pop out depending on, you know, certain s- scenarios. But what about quantity or quality of deer? What's the what are you expecting to see when you start hunting every year? So based on some of the trail camera, you know, info I've done in the past, um, you can expect anywhere between four to six, maybe seven, what I would call good four and a half year old, 140, 150. And the score is not terribly important, but, um, you know, that, that deer that you're going to be proud to put your tag on. Right. Um, so we're talking about then, a higher age class. Right. right. And, and I mean, the, the, there's, I mean, I've killed a deer, um, and I think we talked about this last time on the podcast. I actually killed a 214-inch deer on that property, uh, I guess it was 11 years ago. Gotcha. Um, So the genetics are there. It's kind of on the southern edge. I mean, if you look at, like, everybody talks about, like, Iowa, you know, Illinois, Kansas being, like, this super great area for deer. I think I think Missouri is a little bit maybe underrated in that there are just some awesome deer in Missouri when you get north of I'm going to say the Missouri River, so the northern half of Missouri. Right. And we're kind of on the very southern edge of where you're going to see some really really good deer. 
Gotcha. Uh, you get down into the Ozarks and stuff and it gets really tough. But yeah. uh, we're, like I said, we're probably the southernmost area where there's really good genetics and really good cover for them to hide. And so, and soil. I mean, is it, yeah. And it, you know, is it as good as Southeast Iowa or like the Northern tip of Missouri? No, but it's, it's probably just one step down from there. So every year there's, there's usually a good deer for me to chase. Right. So do you like, for me, I'm lucky just because I live in Iowa and I have maybe one deer, maybe two deer that in the summertime show themselves or make their way through the property maybe one time during the rut uh, that are just like magazine cover type bucks, right? Just giant over Boone and Crockett. Uh, do you ever run into... Like, do you have those kind of deer show up on a regular basis or is that like once every five years type of deal? I would say every other year to maybe every three years, you're going to see that 170, 180, you know, that like last year, my, my, uh, my dad called me and unfortunately I was tagged out already, but he calls me the day before rifle season and says, you know, get over here right now. And there was about, I'm going to say he's 190 inch deer. Oh boy. bedded down in a pasture behind his house um with a doe and uh he was i mean he was giant yeah. absolutely giant um and then like i said i killed one over 200 uh there's been one killed that was around 170 um so yeah there's definitely potential for that 170 180 190 inch deer there you know every it's not every year but it's probably every other every three years something like that gotcha now on this on this farm you know obvious it's public or excuse me it's private ground but how many other hunters or family members do you share this ground with so there's two guys that bow hunt uh as much as i do and then there's another guy who maybe will bow hunt a couple times before rifle season. And then during rifle season, it does get a little bit crowded just with, um, like my brother comes and hunts and he doesn't, uh, bow hunt. Uh, we've got a couple other guys that'll come for rifle season. So rifle season, it gets pretty crowded, but during bow season, um, I've, I don't have it to myself, but me and a guy that I hunt with quite a bit, we, for the most part, are the only two, and then there's another guy who hunts, Every hunts a little bit, but not a whole lot, yeah. So, worst case scenario, three people on how many acres? Uh, it's around, uh, that portion of the farm is around like 550 or so, and then, um, but kind of what I would call like the hunting area where, yeah. you know, parts that we don't own, but our bedding area that not others hunt, it's around 700. Gotcha. So, you know, if you do it right and your access is right and you're in communication with everybody, it would seem pretty low pressure, right? No one's going to be it, stepping it, on anybody's toes. Yeah, it is. And we can get to that later, but the access is terrible. Basically yeah. we have only really one way in and out because of the, the subdivisions and the streets and whatnot it's the yeah it's a perfect situation it's not a perfect situation but it is a great situation but it's probably not as great as what it may sound on paper yeah absolutely. you really get down to it yeah makes sense because my farm lays the exact same way like a yeah, long it, rectangle basically or like an l and then you can only come and then there's a a, a crick on one side of it and on the other side of the creek is property I can't access. And then on the South side is more property I can't use to access this farm. So, um, so going into every season, then 
what is your goal? I mean, I, I take it that over the years, and especially the last two years, you've been successful. Uh, what is your goal from a maybe an age class or an antler size, you know, going into every year? Yeah, so my goal is really just to kill a, you know, at least it has been the last couple of years, is just to kill a really, you know, I'm going to say like the top 15% of deer on the property. So that 140, 150 inch deer that's, you know, hopefully four and a half or five and a half years old. Uh, that, and I, I don't really, I mean, I know this, I, I don't know how this sounds, but it's almost like I don't really make a decision. It's kind of that gut feeling like, oh, that's a great deer. I'm going to shoot it. You yeah. know, it, it's kind of hard to go into the season back. Oh, I'm only going to kill a five and a half year old or I'm only going to kill a 150 inch deer. I've never really taken it like that. Um, I, I know that I don't, I know. We've kind of got a rule that if you're going to shoot a deer on our farm, it needs to go on your wall. So yeah. that means different things to different people. Um, but that's that's kind of the, the the rule that we've had the last few years. Yeah, I mean, makes sense. Uh, that leaves it a little bit open for interpretation, right? When when someone's mm-hmm. you know maybe he's not old, but he's got a big rack, or maybe he's you know maybe he's real old but doesn't have a a, a big rack. You know, those are those are two things that I think a lot of people just, we get so obsessed with a number and I talk about this all the time, you know, whether that's an age class number or whether it's a inches on the antler number, people get carried away with that. And they, they go into a season with additional expectations that they might not be able to, you know, a goal that they might not even be able to accomplish. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like I've, the way I look at hunting is like, I've got goals with work. I've got goals with family. Like hunting is kind of like my time to release from all that. So I don't necessarily like to put a lot of pressure on myself saying you have to do this or the season's a failure. Or if you don't, you know, right. if you see this great deer, but it's not up to your expectations, you shouldn't shoot it. So I, I just have never really taken it that far and just, you know, like to go out and have a good time and, and hopefully, uh, can get a nice deer on the wall so right. um, and some meat in the freezer so that's right all right now we got to talk a little bit about this evolution um that you've kind of undergone over the last let, i'll just say five years right because uh-huh. it, you know in this email that you sent me you pretty much said that things have started to click for you a little bit in the past two years, you know, this year you were successful the year before you were successful. Um, now was that, that 200 incher that you shot, you know, years back, was that a rifle kill or was that a bow kill? Rifle. 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 Okay. All right. So as a, as a bow hunter, right, it takes a little bit more strategy. I would say a little bit more, um, you know, mobility, a little bit more thought, if you want to be a successful bow hunter. Now I want you to take yourself and and maybe look at yourself 10 years ago as a bow hunter. Talk to us about what you were like as a bow hunter 10 years ago, maybe even five years, years ago, depending on when that big change for you happened. Yeah. So I started hunting, uh, you know, I guess when I was like 12 or 11, somewhere in there. And my hunting mentors, I guess were all rifle hunters. And so the way we rifle hunted was we put a stand on a field edge and we sat there and we hoped to see a good deer. And a lot of times, you know, if it's within 250 yards, you were going to shoot that deer. Uh, and that's how I bow hunted. Um, 
my uh, radius was just shrunk down to 35 yards on each side, but I was on the field edge. I was hope you know, it, we'd scout and kind of see where they were coming out to the field and whatnot. Uh, but that was the strategy was uh, pick a trail coming out to the field and sit on it or sit between two and hope that a, hope that a deer walked out to the field where you could shoot it. Um, and then I guess I had this realization a couple of years ago, probably three or four years ago where, you know, I am a, you know, I love bow hunting. Um, hunting is, you know, really the only hobby that I have. I don't go out and like play golf all the time. And so this is what I'm very serious about and what I love doing. And I'm really bad at it. Um, you know, I'm not having success. I'm not having encounters with, with large, you know, with the deer that I want to harvest. Um, so I need to change what I'm doing. Otherwise I'm never going to be successful. Uh, and that's kind of when this, I guess, evolution, if you want to call it evolution started, right. um, to where I just re you know, started rethinking everything that I'm doing, uh, when it comes to bow hunting. Right. So in the beginning, all you really did was just change the weapon. You didn't change any strategy. You didn't change access routes you didn't change wind direction that kind of stuff you just changed your weapon and, and then yeah i started... paid a little yeah i probably paid a little bit more attention to the wind but other than that i'd say yeah you're 100 percent correct okay all right so we all learn from failure right what was it and if you have a specific example this would be that would be awesome but what was it that made it, you have this internal conversation with yourself that said man I got to, I got to change how I'm doing things. If I want to be better at bow hunting. I think what it was is I was, you know, I, I knew the deer were there. I was seeing other people harvest, you know, the deer that I wanted to harvest. And not only was I not, you know, not putting my tag on a deer, I wasn't even having the encounters, you know, maybe you'd see one 300 yards off, but I was not, I mean, I went, I'm, I'm going to say I went 10 years and not all of that was serious hunting. I mean, some of that was through high school and college where you're maybe just hunting five, six, seven times a year. Um, but I probably went 10 years and maybe had two encounters with a buck that I wanted to shoot with my bow. Yeah. Uh, so I just kind of thought to myself like, well, everything you've done is wrong or maybe not everything, but, but what you're doing isn't working. It's time to change something. Right. So is that when you started breaking everything down and evaluating yourself or did you go on a, a quest for information? Uh, both, but mainly a quest for information. Like what are these other people doing? And that was kind of, I mean, it really coincided well because I feel like over the last three, four years, there's been a real rise in like when I was a kid, you watched the juries and they're awesome. But, you know, you watch the juries and you watch, you know, name five hunting celebrity shows. OK, and that yeah. and that was your access to information where now you have all these podcasts, all these forms on social media, all these, you know, forms online like the hunting beast. And, what you know, there's you could you could make a list of 50 of them in probably 20 minutes. Right. right. Um, so the so the information has become a lot more accessible to the average guy. And relatable. And, um, and relatable. You're exactly right. Um, so like, you know, wired to hunt is, is I, I listen to it almost every week. I mean, 
there's just people coming on there and talking about what they're doing and what they're seeing. And, and then on your podcast as well, just like the average guy saying, you know, this is how I'm having success and just kind of, you know, and some of us, some of it isn't, you know, like if there's a guy in West Virginia in Hill country, uh, maybe not as paying attention to that as I am a guy in Missouri or Indiana or Illinois. Right. Uh, but there's just tons of information out there that you can dive into. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's one thing that I think, with all this additional information coming out, you know, like my podcast and forums and social media that the, the masses are starting to realize that the, you know, that unless you own big properties that are specifically for managing deer, you're probably not getting too much of an education from those hunting television shows, right? It's just, it's they're on a different level than the rest of the the hunters in America. So when you can find information that is relatable and cuz dude I I remember doing the same thing. I remember watching like Real Tree Monster Bucks VHS tapes and watching these guys sit on food plots and that's what I did when I started really you know I, I wouldn't say my first my second jump into bow hunting but my first jump into bow hunting was that's what I did. I sat on cornfields and soybean fields on a ladder stand and wished a big buck would step out. And that never happened. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's, you know, you can, there's certain things you can pick up from those. And like what drives me crazy is you'll see it like on Facebook and Instagram all the time. People be like, well, so, you know, yeah. Tiffany Lukowski only killed this because of their pride. Like, no, those people are all damn good hunters. And there's, you know, you don't just walk onto some farm and kill a big deer like they're great hunters there's stuff you can pick up from them but yeah it's a it's a totally different situation that 95 percent of us are in would you Um, i know this is kind of going off on on a tangent but let me ask you this question my my it's not a it's not really a question but i'm going to say a comment and i want to i want to hear what you have to say about it i think there's two types of hunters there is the hunter that will go to the deer, like let's say the, the like the hunting beast method, right? Go find their beds, go find their signs, go to their terrain features, and go to them, attack them. And then there's the hunters that manipulate the land and put out the food plots and maybe create funnels via food plot and that's how they hunt. Would you would you agree or disagree with that? Uh, or what I don't are your know. Thoughts? Yeah. My thought is that maybe it's not that black and white. I think there's a lot of people who do both, Yeah, I guess, would be um, – because, yeah, you look at, like, um, like from the TV I – don't, I don't watch, like, a ton of TV. It's more like, okay, the kids are asleep. I'm going to watch this show for 20 minutes. But I do try to keep up with uh, Bill Winkie. He's got the kind of, like, semi-live show that I try to watch. Right. Um, and there's times where, like, like he's – you know, he's a better deer hunter than I'll ever be. Like I, I would concede that, but there's times where I'm like, man, just go get him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then there's, there's times where like you hear like Dan Infault's the, you know, like the big go-to guy that you kind of read about in his form. And there's tons of times, you know, there's times where I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know that I would do that. Cause if I bump this deer, or if I screw this spot up, like I'm cooked for the rest of the year. So I think like myself, I'm in between the two. And I think a lot of people are in between the two, but, um, I, you know, I would agree kind of with what you're saying is that there's, there's definitely 
two distinct styles that people can, you know, attack the deer woods with. And they're obviously both working for, you know, whoever you're talking about, but, uh, right. right. I think a lot of us don't really have the luxury of saying, I'm just going to wait for them to come to the food plot. And a lot of them, cause I, I mean, I would think if you're going to be deep into a bedding area, you've got to have a lot of different spots where if you screw this spot up on a Tuesday, you got a different spot to hunt on a Thursday. Right. And I don't have that. Most people I don't think do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So going back into this, you know, you, you started seeking out information and you found some information was it easy for you to take that information and apply it, apply the principles that you've learned from others or where the, the information that you did end up consuming and apply it? Or did it take like a lot of lessons and failures to, to get it right on your, on your property? Really? I mean, so kind of what I do every year is I will map out kind of a plan for the season. Um, where, you know, these are the, th- you know, these are the spots and, and I do a lot of late season scouting, like late at, so after the bow season closes, but that February, March kind of in between deer season and turkey season time, that's the time that I use to walk my entire property. I mean, I don't care about bedding areas I'm walking every inch of the property and I've got like a little, well, I use the notes on my iPhone, just, uh, you know found a, a rub here, found a scrape here. This looks like a good pinch point. And so I will kind of map the property out and what I've seen. And then I'm going to approach the season of, okay, I need to either have stands here, or have areas trimmed here. So I would say that, you know, doing a lot of off season research, and that's the great thing with like, like your podcast, for example, just because it's not hunting season doesn't mean there's not a podcast out. There's people talking on it all the time. So, um, you can do a lot of research in the off season and then develop a plan attacking that, you know, say it's the 2018 deer season uh, without having to make a lot of screw ups to figure out, you know, what you need to be doing and what you not need, you know, do not need to be doing. Right. Right. All right. So with that said, do you have a specific example of a time that you went in and failed and a, took that information to the next season or B capitalized on it right away, made a quick change and then were successful. So, um, I, I'll talk about, it wasn't really a failure. It was maybe something that I learned in the off season and then implemented right away and into the harvest and the deer. And that goes back to 2017. And, um, you know, traditionally I hunted when I had time. Okay. So if it was a Saturday and there's nothing going on, I'd go out and hunt or, you know, I, I didn't really pick like, I'm going to hunt this day because of this reason. And, um, I have a job that's pretty flexible. Um, so I work a lot in the fall. I work in the agriculture business. So that's kind of our busiest time is in the fall, but it is pretty flexible that if a cold front comes in or a high pressure scenario comes in, I can be home at three o'clock and head out to the woods. And so, um, last year we've been 2017, uh, the first cold front that we had was October 15th. Okay. And so I, I knew the cold front was coming in, say like five days before. And I was like, okay, I'm hunting that day. And I hunted that day and it was still early. So I didn't pick the best spot I had. Um, but I went in and I hunted that day where I thought the deer would be moving earlier than what they normally are. 
And uh, I ended up harvesting that 10 pointer that I'd sent you a picture of awesome. um, like right before dark. So, so go into, go into a little bit of detail about that hunt. Okay. So um, it was the first time of the year and I hadn't done a ton of scouting. The bean, there was beans. So our entire, basically two thirds of the farm will be in one crop and the other third will be in the other crop. So okay. that year it was two thirds beans, one third corn. And, um, the beans had come off probably, I'm going to say 10 to 12 days beforehand. And, um, so I had kind of a spot that I thought I was going to go to, but with the nature of the bottom and kind of how the river runs around it, the wind, you know, it, it can say on your weather app that you're, there's going to be a South wind, you get to the bottom and there's a West wind. Um, so I got to the bottom and it was supposed to be uh, actually an east wind, and which we rarely ever have. Uh, but it was supposed to be an east wind. I was going to go to the stand on the southern edge of the property. The wind was just completely wrong. And so I decided the wind was actually coming out of the southwest. So there's a stand uh, that is on the edge of a bedding area, uh, kind of in a transition zone from bedding to food. And that part of the bottom kind of sinks down a little bit. So the deer like to feed out there because they're not exposed to the entire bottom. Okay. Um, and when I say transition zone, it's like they're probably bedding 50 to 70 yards from where they're eating. So it's not a huge transition zone. There's just not a lot of timber on the property. So I go and I sit in this stand. Um, the wind swirls on me is blowing back into the uh, bedding area. So that's the first thing that was working against me. And then on the other side of the river, a guy comes down on a Polaris Ranger and starts playing like Metallica and ACDC and <laughs> just like all kinds of heavy metal. I mean, I can hear the words to it. I think there was some Buck Cherry, some buck cherry in there. And um, so I was down there. My hunting partner was like 300 yards away. And I'm, I'm just texting him like, hey, this sucks. I think I'm going to try to get down and move, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, he was he was within 80 yards of me and I'm just kind of sitting there zoned out. Like this is not going to happen tonight. It's just, you know, it's one of those deals. The guy packs up and leaves. The wind is still blowing back into this bedding area. Uh, but kind of how it works is I'm on very close to a field edge. The bedding area is to the South of me. The stand is facing North. And then the, the river is on the East. I'm sorry the west or like the left-hand side of the stand as I'm looking at it. And then the wood line extends away from me on the west, just continues down the river. Um, so I'm sitting there kind of disengaged, feeling pretty crappy, you know. And uh, the guy packs up, he goes home. And you just, you know, like sometimes you just get that feeling like, okay, you know, this might be good. Something might happen here. And so it was probably 30, 40 minutes before dark. And so I kind of get reengaged and, uh, about 20 minutes before dark, a deer, uh, the buck I ended up harvesting walks out 70 yards in front of me into the field. All right. And he immediately, I have a question. I have a question. You mentioned that, Uh, you mentioned that the wind, you know, before, you know, the buck cherry dude shows up, the, the wind was blowing into the bedding area, right? Mm Mm-hmm. What made you say, or why why did you decide that letting your scent blow into a bedding area was a good thing and you didn't want to move? 
uh, because the, it was a very long walk into the stand. And I thought that between the time that I had to walk all the way across the field and then walk all the way back down to the stand, I just thought that would be more intrusive than, you know, leaving would be worse than staying there. The other thing about the property is there are bedding areas, but the deer can bed. They, the majority of the time they just won't bed in one area. They kind of bed out of convenience. So they, they can bed kind of anywhere in the property. Uh, this is one spot that they tend to bed more than others. Um, but I didn't feel that, and it was kind of blowing. So I want to say the bedding area is about 10 acres, yeah. uh, but the main, er- the main area that they're bedding is, is along the river and it's about two acres. So my wind was kind of blowing into the, I'm going to call it like the secondary bedding area. Okay. Um, so it wasn't blowing right, right into where I thought they would be bedding. It was, if I'd have known the wind direction was going to do that, I would not have hunted there. Right. Um, but I just, you know, I was hunting with somebody else. I didn't feel like getting down and walking all the way across the field and, you know, maybe screwing his hunt up. And so I just hung it, you know, and, and the other thing is the wind can blow one direction for an hour and then an hour later it's blowing a different direction. Right. Um, so, um, I just, you know, I, I, I thought really hard about moving, but just ended, ended up deciding not to. Okay. All right. Well, obviously, I mean, there was no deer that you knew of bedded downwind to you, uh, and this boy shows up. So, so he shows up and your stand is on a field edge, right? It's, it's, I'm going to say it's like 10 to 15 yards inside of a field edge. Okay. All right. So. Your wind's blowing in, which if you were sitting in that stand and the wind was not blowing into that, you know, so obviously this deer, although he was up from you, the wind was blowing off the field into him, right? So he he thought he had the wind to his uh, advantage, right, coming out. Uh, do you feel that if that wind was any other direction that uh, – you wouldn't have seen this deer or, or did you feel that regardless of the wind direction, this buck was showing up? So I guess what you're asking is if his movement was based off the wind direction and and I really can't answer that. Okay. Um, I do know that, you know, I had planned to hunt that, that spot with either a South wind or West wind. And if I would have had a South wind, uh, it would have blown my scent right to him. So um, it did work out pretty well that, that the wind did swirl on me. Okay. Um, cause he would have been right downwind. Right. If, absolutely. If hadn't. Okay. So he shows up 70 yards on a, he showed up on the field edge or did he show up just, I guess. So he came out. So yeah, so I'm back, I'm back in the woods a little bit, but I have a clear shot to the field. Okay. He walked out into the field 70 yards north of me. And then he turned and there was actually a spot in the field where the combine had missed like a 20 square foot area of of beans. Okay. He went right to those standing beans and just started picking on them. Right. So how, at, at that point, how far is he from you? Uh, he was 35 is what I ranged him. Okay. And did you take the shot at that point or did you have to wait for him? So he was, so he faced directly at me for 15 minutes and ate those oh, beans. Oh my God. That's, <laughs> I can just, I can, I'm looking back at, you know, hunts I've been on where I've had scenarios like that, where I've, I had a, 
oh man, this was years ago, but I had like a one one sixty five class ten pointer. I I did a rattling sequence, and about ten minutes later, this buck comes in on not a trot, not a run, but he was walking right straight to me, and I was drawn back at about he got up to about twelve yards, give or take, and I was drawn back, and then he just. He walked straight to me, so I had no shot. And then he took like this hard right turn and ended up going all like then it was no shooting lanes until he was out of shooting range. You know what I mean? So I just Yeah. It, it drives you bananas. Yeah, and he was he was out in the field, but I knew that if I was still and quiet and didn't move, uh, that I'd probably eventually have a shot. Right. Uh, but this was right before dark. And I'm sitting there like, oh, God, it, it may get dark before this guy ever turns. And so finally he did turn. And as soon as he turned, I pulled, I drew back on him and I shot him. Right. Right. And uh, how far was the shot at that point then? 35, give or take? Yeah. Yeah. Right at 35. Right. Right. Cool. So then, so that was this year's buck, right? That was last year. Last year. Okay. So, yeah. so now, that did that give you a little bit of more confidence about your hunting strategy, how it worked, and, and all that stuff? Absolutely, yeah. And I actually, I, whenever I killed that deer, I think I maybe sent you an email or, or something on Facebook and said, October lull my ass. <laughs> and uh, I love it. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, gave me some more confidence, but also kind of uh, gave me the, the, you know, knowing that that is a complete, you know, it's just not true in my opinion at all. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and science, science and data show that it just movement increases all the way through no, uh, October. So, yeah, I, I love yeah. it. But I, yeah. Anyways, gave, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, I love when people send me those messages and they're like, oh, yeah. October low, man, October low my ass. Yep. But yeah, it gave me a ton of confidence, I guess, going into 18, um, where I was like, okay, well, this is doable, you know, <laughs> it's, um, you know, I, ju I just did it. So it's definitely something that can be done, uh, where before I was like, man, how do these people kill these big deer? So, right. Uh, right. So, so you got a little bit more confidence. Now I want to take a, a sidestep out of here and ask you about the access because you, you, you yourself say that the way the farm is laid is just horrible for access. Yeah. So, so basically the reason it's horrible for us, so we've got, so the Southern half of the property, we cannot access, um, from the Western side at all. Uh, you could access it from the, like if I were to buy a boat and go like drive around and put it in, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a boat ramp there. Like the access could be great if I were to go through all that effort. And I know a lot of people do it and just like with kids and work and time, you know, it's just, I, I don't feel that I have the time to like go through all those extra steps and take two extra hours to drive around, put a boat in, take the boat to where I want to hunt and all that. So um, we can only access it. Basically you have to walk across the entire bottom to get to a lot of these prime hunting areas along the river. Um, so I just choose to not, hunt it in the morning at all because gotcha. you walk across and you blow all these deer out right um and then the afternoon the access is not so bad you still have to walk across the bottom but i don't think you know they're bedded down they may see it but they're just not seeing it as threatening as if you 
walk within 50 yards of them in the middle of the field, you know, when it's dark out. Right. Um, so with that so, said, have you tried any additional entry methods in the past, like actually having a truck drive you right to your stand location and then drive back out? So I, I don't really like with, with walking to the stand, I don't see it as big being like hugely intrusive. I will though, if there's, if I'm hunting with somebody or if somebody's around the farm and they can come pick me up, I have done that in the past. Got you. Uh, that way you're not blowing everything out when you walk out. Right. Uh, the other thing is they can kind of, the, the bottom is pretty big. So a lot of times maybe they'll, they'll pass by where I'm at, hit the field, feed 200 yards out into the bottom. And I can just wait till it's really dark, get down and sneak out. And you may bust one deer, but you're not busting that group of, you know, six to 12 or however many that are feeding out there. So, right. um, those are really the two things I'm doing. Uh, and then, you know, as far as the morning goes, I've really just got, about three locations I can hunt in the morning where I have good access. So I choose to hunt those places or to not hunt in the morning. Right. So let me ask you this. What would it take? What kind of deer would it take for you to go through all that backdoor access trouble and hunt a morning, uh, like backdoor that property to, in, in hopes of not spooking deer off the field? it would take a really big deer or it would take like 10 years to where my kids aren't as uh, high maintenance as they are now. And I have more time to do it. <laughs> I, I've definitely thought about it, but you know, it's like, and you're in the same situation. I mean, I've listened to your podcast. I'm sure you're in the same situation where it's like, you only have so many hours to go, you know, to do this hunt or to do, you know? And so it's like, I'm leaving at two and I'll be back at seven. Well, if you do the boat, it's like, well, I'm leaving at noon and I'll be back at nine. So it's right. just, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to do that. Um, but you know, in the future, it's something I may, uh, I may end up doing. Uh, but man, if there was a 200 inch deer in that area, <laughs> I'd probably figure out a way to do it. So, right. So you, you typically only hunt afternoons and you, which just kind of, I don't even need to ask the hunt all day question. Um, so I'll hunt all day in, so like I said, there's, there's a couple locations on the farm and actually one of the, the location where I harvest my deer in 2018 is a spot I can access in the morning. So I've got three to four areas on the farm that are on the Western side of the farm where I can access in the morning, no problem. Uh, so I just, I will hunt those places, but I do like when I, you know, I, I'm hunting more often in the afternoon because of those limited locations, I don't want to overhunt those in the morning. Right. Uh, and then um, sometimes what I'll do is, is we do tend to have some some kind of midday movement where all day would be pretty pretty nice. So what I'll do is I'll morning hunt till nine thirty or ten, where the deer you know are often not in the field, and then I'll just get down, walk over to that stand that that I that I can't access through the field. And uh, I'll sit up there at nine thirty, ten o'clock, and then sit the remainder of the day. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. So now going back to this, uh, any other big aha moments when you're in the stand in the last five years that have really kind of guided you towards uh, the hunter that you've become, you know, and basically the increased uh, success that you've had? 
So lowering the pressure has been huge. Yeah. Um, and I kind of alluded to that earlier in the podcast, but that northern half of my property, there's an area where those deer can go a lifetime and, you know, not ever see anybody. So just really picking, you know, how I'm accessing them, when I'm accessing them, only going in there on, you know, what I deem to be as the good times where, you know, you have a cold front coming in or it's the middle of the rut. Um, you know, I used to run a lot of trail cameras. I've really dialed that back. Uh, just because I don't want to add pressure. Um, and, you know, I, I've kind of got a love hate relationship with trail cameras. Cause I just don't know how much they're really telling you. Like, I don't know how much information you can pull a card and then kill a deer the next week. I think right. for the most part that that activity has happened already. Um, I have thought about like buying some cell cameras and that could kind of help, but that's just such a huge investment. I haven't made that yet. Um, so trying to keep things as low pressure as possible, uh, has helped out quite a bit. Cause like on our farm, and I know it's a lot of places, there's a lot of places like this. It, the first week in November is a completely different world than the third week in November after rifle season hits. I mean, it is changed drastically just because of the amount of people in there with ATVs and UTVs and there's, you know, their rifles and, uh, just a completely different world. Yeah. Right. So, so keeping the pressure low, um, and then, uh, kind of hunting areas where, you know, knowing kind of how the deer are moving throughout the limited amount of timber that we have and knowing where to set up in that timber has been, um, helpful as well. Uh, and then just paying more, like I never really paid much attention to terrain features at all. And that's something, and we, and most of that is because we just don't have a lot of terrain features. I mean, for the most part, it's pretty flat. Right. Um, but looking at like, okay, this, this, uh, Creek runs through the property and it's hard to cross here and it's hard to cross there, but it's pretty easy to cross there, uh, setting up in that area versus a different one. So kind of using those pinch points a little bit, even though they're not, I mean, that's part of the, the off season is, is my, uh, my, you know, the majority of my Intel going into the next year I'm getting in February and March. And I'm just walking every inch of that property because the, the differences aren't huge. They're little things, you know, there's a, there's like a thicket where deer don't like to walk through at all, but they'll walk through on either side of it. So I'll hunt either side of that, knowing, you know, depending on what the wind direction is. So identifying that area and knowing that they don't really like to walk through it, but they've got to get from point A to point B. So they'll walk alongside of it. So that was an area that I found a couple of years ago that I've been hunting the last couple of years. So, just really paying attention to the small things um, that are going to funnel their movement in one direction or the other. Right. So when you're walking, uh, I take it you do some shed hunting as well. Yeah, it's it's like everybody talks about shed hunting, and for me, it's like scouting first, and if I see a shed, that's awesome. Uh, but it's kind of like a dual mission. But it's I'm more focused on the scouting than I am the shed hunting. But definitely, I've found some sheds over the last couple of years. Okay. Cool. So. You know, with all with all that said, then, um, like at a very high level, right? If you were in the position to give advice to someone who's struggling, you know, and and I say high level because we don't know other people's scenarios if they're hunting public ground or if they're hunting private or if they have access to ten acres or they have access to a thousand acres, right? So if you were if you were in the position to give advice to somebody. What kind of advice would you give to a bow hunter that's that's kind of struggling? 
So my two pieces of advice would be like, if you've hunted for several years and not had any success, um, to one change what you're doing. Um, cause you know what the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting success. So right. change what you're doing and just dive in. I mean, it's almost, it's almost like unreal how much information there is out there and not right. everybody's an expert, but there's a lot of people who are just good deer hunters. You know, they're not, they don't have a, you know, a podcast or a TV show, but you can listen to them and, and, and kind of filter that information too, because, you know, I, I have noticed like on certain, like, whether they be like Facebook forums or online forums, there's a lot of people who just don't know what they're talking about. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Um, but, ju- you know, just trying to read that and evaluate it and see, it, you know, first kind of like qualifying it saying, you know, does this person know what they're talking about? If, if you, you know, pull up his Facebook account and there's a bunch of pictures of him in a tree stand, but none with a deer, it's like, well, maybe I don't <laughs> listen to that guy that much. Um, but if, you know, you pull up and there's a guy that is, you know, his pro his last 10 profile pictures are 10 different bucks. then you know, this guy probably could, you know, knows right. what he's talking about. If you, um, if you need, yeah, a, just change. If you need any ahead. advice on the selfie game, then you can talk to that guy. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, uh, but, uh, yeah, just kind of trying to qualify that information and, you know, just getting it from as many, like I, I, I drive, like I'm, I'm in sales and I'm driving around constantly. I'm always listening to, you know, podcasts and then at home, you know, it's almost every day that I'm doing some type of deer related, either like research or just reading about something or listening to something. Um, so, I mean, putting your time into becoming a better deer hunter is very important. I mean, I don't think you're just going to get out, walk around your property and be able to figure it out. You've got to, you got to steal other people's ideas and, and then create some of your own to have success in my mind. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and, and BS with us for a little bit about, you know, a little bit about the evolution uh, of uh, your your hunting style, especially bow hunting. Congrats on two really successful seasons. We didn't even get a chance to talk about this year's buck, but um, we'll we'll have to do it again sometime. And uh, you know, good luck uh, on the scouting missions, on the shed hunts, and everything that you do between now and uh, next season, man. Yeah, it, one one more thing, uh, investing in a mobile setup is is really helpful as well because no matter how uh, no matter how much you know going into the season, it's going to change during the season. And so being able to move kind of you know on the drop of a hat uh, is is really helpful as well because um, like I said, you're not going to have it all figured out going into the season. So amen, amen. Well, hey man, until next time. Yep. Thanks, Dan. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Bradley for hopping on and chatting with us about uh, deer hunting. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to the podcast and support the Sportsman's Nation. Uh, Big ups to you guys. Really appreciate everything. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. Exodus, Ozonix, Wasp, Lone Wolf, Deer Lab Prime, Ripcord, Ozonix, and Hunter Safety Systems. Guys, um, go to social media, follow not only Nine Finger Chronicles, but follow the Sportsman's Nation, and go subscribe to the podcast uh, on on the Sportsman's Nation. Whatever uh, podcast that you want to subscribe to, go and do it, or the whole uh, the whole network. Uh, go do that. Leave a review wherever you download your podcast, and uh, 
Lastly, if you're gonna be in a tree, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good rest of the week.